Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. And before we get started, officially at least, let me uh, again thank all those who donated in support of Talking Animals and WMNF's Fall Fun Drive, which ended last week. When I spoke with you, in fact, this time last week, I noted that Talking Animals had, had sort of a screwy fun drive show. Long, complicated story. Uh, but I'd fallen short as a result of our fundraising goal. Uh, the later that same day, I learned the show had reached its goal. So thank you for your support. Really appreciate it. Now, of course, WMNF is still working on making its overall station goal. So if you didn't have a chance to pledge or would like to donate again, please do so at WMNF.org. Meanwhile, my guest today is Pete Walsh, who lives in Tasmania, where he found himself becoming deeply concerned about the plight of local platypuses in the capital city of Hobart. This concern developed on the heels of Walsh befriending a female platypus he ended up naming Zoom. The friendship helped transform the soft-spoken man into a vocal activist, launching a campaign to clean up the local waterway where the platypuses live. This story and more is captured in The Platypus Guardian, a documentary kicking off the new season of PBS's Peabody Award-winning series Nature, airing tonight, October 18th, that's tonight, on your local PBS channel. It's a sprightly, charming film, a small story with large, universal themes. It's a measure of PBS's high regard for the doc. The Platypus Guardian was selected as the first film to be broadcast in the new season of Nature. On Saturday morning, I recorded a conversation with Walsh. We talked platypus, unlikely activism, the film, and more. And I'll play back that conversation in a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Sherry Silk, CEO of the Humane Society of Tampa Bay, seeking her perspective and analysis of this monumental controversy you may have heard about involving the SPCA Tampa Bay. That organization's CEO, Martha Bowden, recently unveiled a plan whereby the SPCA Tampa Bay will forge an alliance with Pinnacle Pet, a dog breeding operation headquartered in Missouri, and Sunshine Puppies, which are pet stores. This announced alliance has generated outrage from a growing number of local and national animal welfare organizations, including calls for Bowdoin's ouster. So more on this later in the show with Sherry Silk, who's, again, run Main Society of Tampa Bay for 15, 16 years, been in uh, animal welfare and related fields for 35 or more years. So I think she'll have a pretty wise perspective on what's going on here. Right now, though, let's focus on the singular nutty-looking critter known as the platypus. In my conversation with Pete Walsh, who's at the center of the platypus garden airing tonight on the PBS show Nature. So recorded Saturday morning, bright and early, speaking with him from Tasmania, where it was later, much later, the same day, but much later that day. Here's Pete Walsh on Talking Animals on WMNF. Pete, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's great to be here, Duncan. And I appreciate you particularly doing this interview, especially given the significant time difference. It's, if I have this correct, it's 10 p.m. your time, not exactly a normal hour to do an interview. And it's 7 a.m. my time, also not a normal hour to do an interview. So I really appreciate your flexibility. Yeah, no, no problem. So I loved, loved, loved The Platypus Guardian, and I'm really looking forward to discussing it. But also because the film needs to kind of fit into that hour-long television slot, there's information that simply couldn't be covered. There's just not enough time to cover everything that probably people might be interested in. For example, I'm curious to learn more about you and your background. You're described as a naturalist, and you're clearly a serious photographer. Tell me about your background, particularly as it pertains to animals and nature. Um, Matt, you know, I've always sort of loved the being out in the natural world. Um, but it was really only during COVID that, um, I don't know, I guess I realised that, you know, in being out in the natural world and enjoying it didn't really, uh, it wasn't the same thing as caring for it. And what, can you, can you kind of elaborate on what, what the distinction between those are? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, as an example, you know, me going down to the waterway every day and enjoying being with the platypus and taking photos of them uh, is quite different to actively caring for them. You know, going down to enjoy them uh, doesn't really equate to uh, to helping their situation you know, or making changes. Um, you know, that really kind of falls under the uh, the idea of caring for for me anyway. You know, it's quite distinct. You know. Uh, there's really only a point to uh, to you know photographing the platypus if it leads to uh, to some sort of change. That's my dog barking. That's great. Well, this, this show is called Talking Animals, so we certainly welcome any kind of talking animal in the background. Yeah. So, um, so Pete, then that's interesting because I'm wondering what kind of involvement did you have with animals earlier in your life? Like, I don't know if there was any animal welfare or rescue. Or was your passion for animals chiefly expressed through your photography in the past? Yeah, I mean, we grew up on a farm, you know, with a wide range of animals and then um, kind of replicated that when I had my own children. You know, every, you know, donkeys, (laughs) ducks, geese, dogs, guinea pigs, just you name it. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah, so always had that, you know, um, yearning, I guess, you know, to be close to animals, to have them as part of your life. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Sounds like that, that's been sort of a lifelong pattern, just just the way you grew up and the way you wanted your own kids to grow up. Yeah, very much. Uh, and it was really, you know, I've been fortunate to live in some really beautiful parts of Australia, um, you know, where there are lots of native animals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, what happens uh, with your um, with your photos? I mean, are they published uh, online? Do you have a website or a, a blog or what? Typically, when you take these photos, because you're clearly a very serious and accomplished photographer, so I'm guessing something of importance happens with those after you shoot them. Yeah. So, um, when I, I came across a platypus with rubbish around its bill, um, I think back in 2020, and um, you know, it was when I saw that happen, it was like, well, I need to do more than just take the photos. You know, the photos need to do something. So, you know, I started a, uh, an online community, Hobart Rivulet Platypus, um, which is, you know, a website and all the social media uh, channels. Mm-hmm. Um, so the photography is used there, not just to post photos of platypus, though it's usually tied to a reason uh, or to tell a particular story, you know, or make people aware of, you know, a particular problem, yeah. you know, in, in their environment. And it's also used, you know, to pressure uh, local government. So, you know, you engage the community, but then the images, you know, you also use to, uh, you know, expose problems. And just for people listening who, of course, have not seen the film as of yet, so they may or may not be familiar with the with what a rivulet is. Can you kind of just briefly explain what that what that is? Yeah, what that is. Yeah, so it's only in Tasmania that uh, small sort of streams and creeks are called rivulets. You know, small rivers. Um, even people on the mainland of Australia aren't really that sure what a rivulet is no, down in Tasmania. Uh, okay. Yeah, so a, a small waterway. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I figured it out from context, but when I first heard it, I thought, what am I missing here? I, 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 guess, I guess it's related to that body of water, but um, I just hadn't heard, yeah. hadn't, hadn't heard rivulet before. So I guess before we go too much further, it might be important for people who also aren't familiar, even more notably with uh, platypus, Maybe you could sort of just describe what a platypus is just because it's, well, it's uh, it's definitely a singular kind of creature in all the best best uh, sense of that term. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a bit of a wonder. Uh, you know, I think one of the scientists down here in Australia called it the animal of all time. Um, and, like, I think people would be aware that, you know, when European settlers first saw it, uh, or first saw like a dead platypus, they thought it was a whole lot of animals sort of stitched together. Uh, they weren't really convinced it was actually a real animal. Um, but yeah, so it's a, a mammal, it's a monotreme. Um, what else can I tell you? Lays eggs, yeah. has venomous sperms, uh, has an electronic uh, bill uh, you know, on the front of its head. Like there are so many amazing things about a, a platypus. Yeah. Now, when you say electronic bill, even that sounds uh, more high tech maybe than than it is. But but it is notable that I guess they have like tremendous sensitivity and receptors. In yeah, that. they have. Well, they have many thousands of uh, electroreceptors in their bill. Yeah. Uh, and we don't really actually understand how the magic works. You know, there's lots of theories about how it works and how you know the bill sweeps side to side and they're building up like an uh, an image of. Um, the electric currents around them but yeah it's it's still a bit of a mystery yeah their bill is obviously uh incredible well they say in the film that when they're looking for food that's the bill is the only thing they even rely on that they they close their eyes they don't hear anything necessarily or they're not that's not part of what they use it's strictly the bill that helps them locate food which is pretty impressive so uh, yeah i mean yeah it's amazing yeah the uh the eyes and the ears share one um, kind of slit, one sort of furrow on the side of their head, and they they clamp that down, uh, so it's watertight pretty much. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just the magic bill. Yeah, you know when you watch them underwater going through, um, you know, really uh, complex environments and locating food so readily, you know, it's incredible. And then you'll actually see them uh, with their eyes shut quite often. You know, when they're out in the day. You know, they don't really rely on their, their eyesight to, uh, yeah, once they're underwater. Yeah. No, they're really remarkable creatures. And, and it's, again, if, for people not familiar with them, because they're really, if I, if I understand this correctly, they're really kind of per- particular to uh, Australia, right? You don't really find them outside of them, as far as I know. Maybe I missed yeah. it. Yeah, no, no, this is it. Uh, just down the eastern seaboard of Australia. Yeah. You know, as soon as you start. Traveling west in Australia, there's also no platypus. Um, yeah, yeah, of course, that uh, presents a bit of a challenge, you know, because that habitat on the eastern seaboard is uh, is slowly shrinking. Yeah, well, we're going to de- delve into that in a moment for sure. But but the other thing, I guess, for people who haven't seen them before, they, uh, they are wondrous, but they do look like they were kind of put together by a committee that had some fights along the way about... Uh, you know, what should go where and what kind of body part this should have and this should not have. And um, they really, uh, they're quite <laughs> quite striking. But they're charismatic at the same time. I mean, it's like, even if they look maybe a little bit uh, unusual <laughs> when you first get exposed to them, you, you can't help but sort of be, uh, find them super appealing. So, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, literally for me, um, every time I see them, it's it's very much like the first time just over and over again. Yeah, you, you just go, that is incredible. Like that animal uh, is just insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a sense of discovery probably every time you see them, even if you know, you know quite clearly what they look like and you just saw one an hour ago, whatever, that it's just. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And like for something like their tail, for example, you know, for almost the entire year, it's a rudder. 
uh, and then for the females for a few days a year it turns into another hand which they use uh, to carry uh, all their nesting material in. Uh, it's, you know, it's just incredible. You think, oh, yeah, that's a cool tail. They store fat in it, but it's actually, you know, almost another limb when they need it. With a lot of dexterity too, which is uh, interesting to, to watch. And then there's also, yeah. for the males, there's this whole, which I, I guess I didn't really fully realize about the whole venom spines, like spikes, I guess, kind of, that they yeah. have to defend themselves. And it's like, wow. These guys have an incredible set of features and qualities and traits that are just uh, hard to hard to take in at first glance. Yeah, yeah. The you know the venomous spurs. It was only a few days ago there was a, a woman here who thought she was trying to rescue a platypus. Uh, didn't actually need rescuing, and it mm-hmm. was a male, and she uh, ended up being spurred, and has spent uh, has been in hospital since then. Oh, gee. It's been a, a big news story down here because. Um, it doesn't happen that often, um, and and when it does, you know, everyone is sort of interested, you know, particularly sort of scientists and researchers. Sure. Um, so I guess yeah. that poison, uh, no matter who, what kind of creature it is, is, is uh, it's quite potent. I guess the poison, if she's been hospitalized in kind of serious medical uh, condition, sounds like it's that like those yeah, things. like it is. Uh, it is similar to like a snake uh, venom. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, you know, like there have been reports of dogs being killed when they're spurred by, a, you know, a platypus. You know, humans just feel unwell and sort of uh, in a bit of pain and swollen up. And then other platypus, it, it isn't fatal uh, to other, you know, males. Um, but they, they, you know, they do sort of swell up. Yeah. Obviously, you know, it's painful because <laughs> they're yeah, quite no, long. It's... Yeah, well, it sounds like even if it's not anywhere near fatal, it would certainly cause a reaction in your body if you've got any kind of poison yeah. in there. So uh, so that hopefully that's a warning to not try to rescue a platypus that doesn't need rescuing in, in particular. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think the lesson there is really yeah, just to um, to take a moment to assess the situation. Yeah, you don't really want to be intervening with any wild animal unless they truly do need your help. Yeah. Yeah. So this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Pete Walsh, a Tasmanian man who became uh, deeply concerned about the platypus plight tied to urban development in the capital city of Hobart after Walsh confronts a female platypus he named Zoom. This story and more is captured in The Platypus Guardian, a film kicking off the new season of PBS's Peabody award-winning series Nature tonight on your PBS channel. This interview was recorded Saturday. So, Pete, this may be a, a delicate topic, so please only respond with what you're comfortable sharing. But early in the film, you discuss a medical situation, which sounds serious and also seems to be a catalyst for spending time at the Rivulet, where you first see that platypus that becomes your friend. So <clears throat> can I ask how you're doing now and how you're feeling? Yeah, no, I'm actually feeling um, uh, you know, pretty good at the moment. Oh, good. Great. Yeah. And like, you know, to be honest, you know, I did have a lot of reservations about that being included um, in the documentary. Yeah. I I think it did help explain, um, you know, to viewers, like, why I was going there. Mm -hmm. Um, For sure. And also I think, you know, it opens up questions around, you know, uh, waterway health, (laughs) you know, and you know, health of platypuses, you know, as much as my own, you know, it's, um, 
Yeah. yeah. Well, it seemed like it, it was, was it definitely pretty unusual. Like... Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it, it, it was quite unusual at the screening that we had uh, in Australia to, uh, to see that, you know, across a cinema screen. Um, you know, it was... Uh, to see your own situation displayed, you mean, and, and discussed? Yeah. 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 You know, I wondered about that because it it's, uh, seems like it's quite it's quite personal. <clears throat> and um, and yet, as you kind of note, it sort of does put into maybe a better context what prompted some of your actions towards the platypus and just kind of a sense of awareness and mission that maybe was partly at least cultivated by your medical situation. So yeah. uh, it seemed like it seemed like it was probably difficult to have that included from your own standpoint, but probably important for more precise kind of telling of your story and the platypus story. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an interesting experience, you know, because it's, it's all really quite personal uh, to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was a pretty intense experience. That's for sure. You know, the making of the documentary. Yeah, no, I, I can only imagine because it is, it's a great film. Like I said before, I find it really uh, fascinating and, and engaging but it's it's very it's all not just the medical situation, but just every step along the way. It's very very personal, sort of a, an account of a lot of what what your uh, awakening sort of I guess was to the platypus's difficulties in in that rivulet, and yeah, and for a guy who describes himself as as kind of shy, suddenly becoming mm -hmm. kind of an activist and speaking before the community and taking some steps that you probably were quite surprised to find yourself doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it has been a <laughs> a bit of a whirlwind sort of mystery, you know, mystery tour. Um, yeah. But really beautiful, you know. Um, I really feel like I've found what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> you know? And and, and how, would, how would you describe what that is? I don't, I don't know if it's a word for it, but it's really doing what I'm doing, you know. Um, yeah. But being see, able to, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I was. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, but that's part of what the power of animals, I think, is. Is that uh, whatever situation you bring to another situation, they can kind of motivate change, motivate action, take people out of what their normal inclination would be. Like if you're kind of shy or not really a public speaker or not someone that would think of themselves as a spokesperson or an activist. Suddenly, because of a connection to an animal or, or overall number of animals, you're suddenly doing things that you can't you can't quite believe that you're doing or saying, which only is to help those animals and call attention to something that needs uh, action by a larger community. Yeah, you know, I think at times it, it almost felt like there was no choice that you actually just had to do this. You know, just sort of compelled to do it, and I think it was. You know, similar with the documentary, it was that same feeling of uh, like this is probably going to be a bit hard, but I don't really have a choice. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's something that um, you know that, that needs to happen or or should happen. Yeah, but but that but that's also the power of this is that I mean, in a sense, you did have a choice, but 
but you, at the moment, maybe you didn't feel like you did because you felt like if I'm going to help the platypus, I've got to do this. I've got to say this. I've got to meet, speak before this group. I've got to meet with the media. I've got to do things that I would never in a million years imagine myself otherwise doing. But it's important enough in this in this particular situation for me to kind of step out of my comfort zone and do it. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of other things happening, you know, that weren't a part of the documentary, you know, working with the local government. Uh, or, you know, sometimes, you know, having them investigated for different things. Um, and those really did become quite sort of stressful, um, yeah, when you're kind of getting, you know, the uh, the local government into a bit of trouble. Right. Just, just because you were so unaccustomed to, the, to being in that role and also because there was some probably awkward uh, reactions uh, on, on their part. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, initially, you know, people were, you know, quite enamoured by, you know, this new entity that loved platypus. But, you know, you know, there were some people there where, you know, it made their jobs harder. You know, they couldn't just put a machine into a waterway and do whatever they wanted. They had to actually have a process around it, check for platypus burrows, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And that did sort of, you know, upset some people. I'm sure. I'm sure some people were saying, Oh my God, we've got to do this, this, and this because Pete Walsh is on the case, and because uh, yeah. that guy is spying on us from the you know, from the bush. Right. No, that's great. But I mean, but but that's how that's how things get done. So, talk yeah. talk a little bit about the platypus uh, that you called Zoom. I mean, obviously, we don't we want people to watch the film, which they will, which again debuts tonight when this is when this airs. But uh, talk a little bit about Zoom because that seems critical to the whole story. Yeah, I mean, Zoom is actually you know, really uh, critical to my sort of story, you know, as well. You know, I had spent um, quite a while down, you know, at the review led during COVID uh, with this particular little platypus called Zoom, and I called her that because she really would just zoom across the pond up to you and really make a concerted effort to um, to reach you. Uh, why she was doing that, I don't know, but it was a behaviour that, um, you know, kept happening. And then I came across Zoom one afternoon, you know, with plastic wrapped around her bill. Um, and for a platypus, unless that breaks off, it ends up meaning a pretty slow and painful death, mm. uh, you know, for that animal. And, you know, quite a few platypus die down here that way. Um, and that was really that moment where, you know, I had a connection with this animal and saw her like in a in a situation that should never really happen um you know i just had to do something just just because people were so uh kind of careless about discarding trash and other things that ultimately sometimes could wrap around a platypus bill or otherwise compromise their health is that yeah so basically any loop litter up to about eight centimeters in diameter yeah um you know, the platypus is foraging underwater with their eyes closed like we've spoken about, uh, and this kind of rubbish sinks to the bottom. So if one of those, if there's a loop and it slides over the front of their bill, unfortunately the way that their limbs work, the first thing they want to do is use their back legs to remove it, but their back legs are actually designed as combs, so they pull the loop of rubbish further and further down their body. Oh, and which ends up slicing them open unless it um, unless it breaks before they die. Um, wow. So it's not just people like hair hairbands, for example, or uh, 
just there's so many products we make that are deadly for animals. Uh, but it's also here in Hobart, you know, is that the city tip also empties rubbish into the waterway mm. uh, in, in during any storm events. So, yeah, it's, you have to engage the community with the rubbish problem and you have to engage the city, um, you know, to improve the infrastructure so that these animals don't sort of die, you know, in such a horrible way. Right, which you did, which we see you taking some of those steps to call attention to the the discarded trash and what can happen to the platypus. By the way, platypus is both singular and plural. Am I I right on that? I I wish it was. I wish it was like sheep. Um, But the the correct plural is platypuses. Oh, okay. Um, That's what I had thought um, originally, but maybe I missed it. But I thought in the film... I thought you were referring to them sometimes as oh, yeah. more than one, so I thought maybe maybe I had it wrong before. That's no, that's just because I wish it was like that. And right. you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people do that, uh, even like at um, research conferences about platypus. It's such a hard thing to say platypuses all of the time instead of platypus. Sure. Yeah, uh, but platypodes is actually the uh, is you know if you wanted to go to the nth degree, that is the the correct way to say it but but platypus is or platypus if you like me yeah all right i'm gonna i'm gonna stick with you i'm gonna go with you platypus for singular and plural just because i think that's that's i I think you need support in that position for sure so yeah i think it works for sheep sorry yeah why not (laughs) exactly so what was your reaction backing up a little bit when zoom kept turning up when you would visit the the rivulet and apparently not only not uneasy around you but seeming to be quite comfortable around you i mean did you sort of think well this platypus considers me friendly or or even a friend i guess yeah it's really more something you wonder about like why is that animal doing that like obviously you know for you like in your heart it feels amazing you know to see this supposedly uh shy creature being so inquisitive and sort of comfortable um yeah i mean it felt amazing but why she was doing that it's so hard to say there was a repeated behavior um yeah it wasn't once or twice i mean you saw it happen enough where you thought this platypus uh seems to like me yeah or seems to be particularly curious okay uh, about me for some reason um yeah and a lot of times you know it's a really concerted effort it wasn't just swimming over and it was like uh swimming over and climbing up (laughs) you know the the rocks and you know tapping you on the leg and then scooting off back in the water yeah uh, it, yeah there's physical yeah. contact i guess at times right not only coming yeah. up to see but sometimes even beyond that yeah and it could have just been like a super curious animal like they all do have their own sort of personalities uh, yeah know, like we do um but zoom could tell probably that you were safe and not anything that would be risky or problematic if by getting that close to you. So I think yeah, so. I think so for sure. I think uh, you know all of the the platypus I've spent time with, um, you know, have that sense. You know, if you behave appropriately, um, you know, over a, a long enough period of time, then I think they sort of accept you as, you know, as part of their world. Yeah, this, this guy, this guy is okay. Yeah, yeah, that you're okay and you're not a threat and you haven't uh, disturbed them any other time, so chances are you're not going to do it this time. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Again, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Pete Walsh. She lives in Tasmania and is at the center of the Platypus Guardian, a film kicking off the new season of PBS's Peabody Award-winning series Nature tonight on your PBS channel. This interview was recorded Saturday. So in terms of the trash at the center of the concern in the campaign, did it quickly get far more severe or again it's hard to tell from the film if it's just kind of shrunk down in terms of the time just for the sake of telling a story or did you just kind of notice it because you had developed this this friendship and fondness and kinship really with platypus uh so that's the problem of the litter pollution from you know like the city tip and just from the city generally yeah do you mean yeah um so i mean that problem still very much sort of exists today um, it's not as bad as it was, but it, um, because it was spending so much time like down in the waterway uh, and walking, you know, its length, um, you really get to see you get to see the beautiful things. Like you get to see Zoom, mm-hmm. uh, but then you also see, you know, the the litter pollution, the uh, the runoff from the city that's coming, you know, the construction pollution, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's definitely you know, highs and lows, uh, but then you're really uh, compelled again, you know, to do something about those things you see that, you know, that aren't right. And did you feel good about sort of leading the effort to, to, to clean up the trash, even if it sounds like it's it's a little bit up and down just for, it's not steady progress, but it sounds like there's been progress of some kind. Yeah, I mean, there's some terrific progress. Uh, there's, there's so many people in the community uh, are picking up rubbish along the rivulet. You know, when you're walking there and you see like a, a small group of kids with no adult inside and then they're dragging a, a bag along and they're picking up stuff. That's great. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a big step forward, you know, and, and they're... Yeah, they're just doing that because they want to. The, the kids, the response from the, uh, the kids in Hobart uh, has been incredible. That's great. So, what did you what did you think you learned from leading that effort and kind of stepping up into a role or or maybe multiple roles that you otherwise uh, hadn't been accustomed to before? Yeah, well, what did I learn? Um, I had a lot of things. It's hard to put a finger on one. Um, yeah, well, it can be more than one. Then we're flexible. Yeah, um, well, I think change, any kind of change, seems really difficult. Um, but but yeah, that you can, you know, you can make a difference. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that you know, the, once the community's engaged, you know, they can make an even bigger difference. You know, with the tree planting and picking up the rubbish, uh, and just this whole new, you know, wave of kids coming along. Um, you know, I do a lot of school visits talking about all, you know, the platypus stuff and rubbish. Um, mm-hmm. And that's probably the most exciting thing because you really do see hope when you're in a class of young kids. Yeah, no, that's great. Because one of the things that I was struck by the film is that in some ways it's a very small story. It's it's this city in Tasmania, Hobart. It's, it's a creature that most of us haven't seen unless we happen to do some extensive traveling, probably won't see face to face. So in some ways, it's a small, very specific story, but in, in the way that some of the small, specific stories are the best and most universal stories, there really is a lot of themes here about taking action, being spurred into trying to help solve a problem, even if it's not your natural inclination. And so to me, it's it's both a small, intimate story and a big kind of universal story at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the... Uh... 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, those sort of challenges are just like in every in every town. You know, in in every city. Yeah. You know, you know, wherever wherever people are. Yeah, but it, but it often what we see in so many situations, you know, no matter what city or what part of the world or country or whatever, is that sometimes one person, kind of a cliche, but one person can really make a huge difference, and and in this case, that's you making a huge difference for the platypus. Yeah, and uh, I mean, another really sort of example of a lovely thing that sort of has happened from it is, you know, you get, I had a letter in my letterbox and it was from some kids who lived down the street and they were saying, you know, we saw the documentary, we really loved it, um, but the platypus isn't our favourite animal. You know, we really love owls. We're going to do everything we can, you know, to look after our favourite animal, which is an owl. Um so mm. I thought that was pretty, you know, where it uh, it that's does sort of it does sort of kind of trickle out, doesn't it? For sure. No, that's what I mean. It's so it's so influential because when you just see what you're doing and what what it takes, and again, that that's not your naturally comfortable state to speak publicly or appear before a, a group or a body, a government body. Other people can say to themselves, well, geez, Pete did it. Maybe I can do it too for, yeah, the owl or whatever my animal is that I care about in the same way. So it's, I think. Yeah, I mean, that would, that would be incredible, uh, Duck, and, you know, if, if that happened anyway, even once, you know, um, it's been a really kind of uh, beautiful thing, you know, how much people have connected with, that documentary, um, you know, in Australia. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect it's going to have a similar reaction here. And, and to me, it's not coincidental that the uh, PBS folks have decided to kick off the new season of nature with the, the platypus guardian. Uh, to me, that just, I think, calls attention to how highly they regard the film and just like, Hey, it needs to be kind of in a prominent slot to get as much attention as we think it merits. So I just think that, that the influence is going to continue to to have a, a huge ripple effect as people start see this film. Yeah, I think that's just incredible that, um, that, you know, PBS are going to air it that way. Um, and I guess, you know, there was some kind of magic at work during the filming because it wasn't really um, designed in a certain way. It, it, um, it happened, <laughs> you know. As it happened, it sort of happened, and the story just sort of, you know, wrote itself. Yeah. No, that's just part of the magic, I think, of the whole film and the platypus, the world of platypus as well. And, um, in fact, is there anything you'd like to say about any other platypus that we meet in the film, Scoot, or any uh, anything else? I don't want to give out any spoilers. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to dodge them as best I can while still having a discussion about the film but uh but no i totally understand so we can just uh we can just sidestep that but let me just tell folks one more time this is talking animals on wmnf i'm duncan strauss my guest is pete walsh who lives in tasmania and is the focus of the platypus guardian a wonderful and charming film kicking off the new season of pbs's peabody award-winning series nature that's tonight on wherever your pbs channel is and this interview was recorded saturday so, Pete, let me ask you this uh, kind of more of, I guess, an overall question. In what ways did the platypus transform you? That's a big one. I, um, well, you know, in, in so many ways, I mean, my life is pretty well uh, transformed. Yeah. You know, because of them. Um, like, it really does feel like a home away from home. 
you know, sort of being with them in the waterway. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of kind of comfort and sort of peace that comes with that, um, you know, which I probably didn't have before. Yeah. Um, and you, does your does your life now pretty much day-to-day involve one thing or another platypus-related, like speaking at schools or other efforts? I mean, is it all kind of slightly hooked back into the platypus in one way or another? Yeah, I don't think there'd be a day go by where there wasn't a significant chunk of um, of platypus in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I try, but I try not to let get too busy. Like I still really do love to be down in the waterway. That's the first. That's the place I'd really like to be. <laughs> sure, that's yeah. what kind of created this whole connection with platypus. So I assume you want to maintain that even as you get busy with with other things, including platypus uh, efforts. Yeah, and but also you know, it's it's a great time like locally to visit schools and talk to kids when they've just seen the documentary and they're, they're excited by it or they've connected with it. Yeah. So uh, I think yeah, it's really worth spending time with them. For sure. No, that's so great. And it's so great that you're obviously having an impact and you see them out picking up trash and stuff with the rivulet or they say, you know, they write you a note saying, I love what you did for the platypus. We we, we happen to be uh, more inclined to, towards the owl, but we're going to try to help them in the same way. That is tremendous influence, and that's fantastic. I mean, you, you've got kids here who are like uh, seven, eight years old, and they're writing uh, emails to the local government. Um, they're really quite active. You know, they're doing fundraising for, you know, signage about uh, waterway pollution. It's terrific, really. Like they they're taking action, and and honestly, I think they expect adults uh, to sort of step up and do the same. That's um, great. Yeah. Now we're learning from the kids what we should be doing. So that's exactly how it should be. That's great. Yeah, well, yeah. well, Pete, I just I don't think I have the exact wording, but I know towards the end of the film, I was struck by you're saying something like, and it's close to correct, and maybe off by a word or two surveying your experience. He said, I thought I was looking after nature, but really it was nature looking after me, which I just thought was a tremendous way to sum up your experience there. So, yeah. so uh, Pete, thanks. thank you so much for uh, for making the time to join us on Talking Animals. And again, I look forward to having people have a chance that haven't yet had a chance to see the film. And I think people are really going to be quite struck by it. And thank you for all your great work on behalf of the platypus and uh, spending some time with us today. Now, thank you, Duncan. And if people do want to follow the story of the Hobart Rivulet platypus after the Platypus Guardian, uh, then they can you know, just look for Hobart Rivulet platypus on Instagram or Facebook or Google, and, and they can follow the story, uh, the stories of those animals. You know, yeah. They're ongoing. Hey, thanks again to Pete Walsh for joining me on the show. And again, I guess it goes without saying that I highly recommend the film Platypus Guardian that's airing tonight on Nature at 8 p.m. on uh, whatever your PBS channel is. So, in a moment, I'll talk with Sherry Silk, CEO of the Humane Society of Tampa Bay, about this escalating controversy you may have heard about involving the SPCA Tampa Bay. That organization's CEO, Martha Bowden, recently unveiled a plane by the w, uh, the SPCA Tampa Bay will forge an alliance with a dog breeding operation and uh, with pet stores selling puppies. It's kind of a jarring commercial enterprise that has sparked escalating local and national outrage, and we'll discuss it with Sherry Silk, who spent 16 years leading the Humane Society of Tampa Bay and has logged some 35 years or so in animal welfare. So 
We'll hear that conversation in just a moment. Right now, though, this is Richard Jenny with Platypus Man in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WNF. That's a real animal I saw one night. They had the platypus on. I was laying in my bed, chomping popcorn. House. <laughs> Watching the Geographic show. On comes the platypus. The platypus is the only animal in the world that's a mammal but lays eggs. He has a tail like a beaver and a bill like a duck, but he's neither one. And I was going, wow, this animal is really messed up in the brain. So I kept watching. Turn up the volume. They said, the platypus lives alone. It has very short legs. It eats late at night and can't even see its food. And I went, wow. This animal is me. I'm platypus, man. They should put me on the National Geographic show. The adventures of a totally confused, short-legged night feeder. This would be adventure number one. Just trying to fall asleep in that bed. All right, Richard, Jenny, in the comedy corner with a piece called Platypus Man taken from his album of the same name but so it is time now to speak with sherry silk ceo of the humane society of tampa bay about this rather shocking uh, plan that spca tampa bay recently announced I mentioned a couple times in the run-up to this on the show so let's just get right to welcoming sherry silk back to talking animals on wnf good morning sherry thanks for having me thanks for joining us so let's just jump right in how did you first hear of this alliance you know, people started calling and because they saw a piece, I think it was on ABC Action News, something like that, uh, kind of a, just a, a talking, where Martha was talking about this new program that she was going to, or pilot program that she was going to try. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't believe it, frankly. I was shocked that any humane society would take that approach. And then as I learned more and as people reached out to me, it just snowballed from there. It just took a couple of days where everybody knew about it and everybody was had something to say about it. Yeah, well, I want to come back to some of those reactions and some of the implications. I try not to assume all of the show's listeners are equally conversant with the various issues that we do discuss here from, from week to week. Right. So from the perspective of someone who's long led a top tier uh, multifaceted shelter operation, can you just sort of explain why this SPCA proposal is troubling to so many? So this is the this is the bottom line. There are pet stores that sell purebred puppies um, in the United States that ha- are known to buy those purebred puppies from something called pup brokers or puppy mills. And I think most everybody knows they've seen all of the videos and pictures of what a puppy mill is, or maybe they don't know. Most of them are in the Midwest, Missouri, Kansas, and the like. And these dogs, these purebred dogs, are bred as often as they'll breed. They're kept outside in these not very nice pens. They don't, re- they don't re- get the medical care that they so desperately need when they're sick. And they're, they just have a life of misery so most of us in animal welfare for many years, myself, it's been over 20 years trying to shut down these puppy mills. But as long as there's an outlet for these puppies being sold at pet stores, they're never going to shut down because it's a business. And it's, they're just making money off the backs of animals. So for the last, what, 15, 20, 25 years, I think it's been really cool to adopt, not shopped, at your local animal shelter or rescue group. doesn't have to be us. It can be any. Humane Society or SPCA, everybody's full, uh, Duncan, of so many different kinds of dogs. They need the help to adopt. And there's hundreds or thousands of rescue groups in Florida that are also helping these homeless animals. 
So that's what we, we request people to do. However, if you've got your heart set on a purebred, let's say Frenchie, because those are all the rage now, right? Everybody loves the Frenchies. Then go to a, a breeder, a local breeder, where you can go and visit the parents. They're kept inside like pets. They receive quality vet care and then purchase one of those puppies if you must have a purebred puppy. But certainly don't go to a pet store and buy one because you're supporting puppy mills. And I would think that uh, even that example you gave, sometimes a step that some people would say to at least explore first before you even go to the to the better quality breeder is a pet finder. Sometimes if you do a search for, if you need a specific breed or you just want a specific breed, often with the right kind of search, you can find one and still adopt. And you're not even, you know, even at that point, you're not purchasing a dog, which again, with so many needs homes, everybody always talks about adopt on shop. But I mean, if you can adopt one way or another, even if you must have a specific breed, right, there's, right. there's still a way to get there. And you know what? Most of us, most shelters uh, in Florida have anywhere between 20 and 25% of their dogs are purebred. So you just have to be patient. You know, we get lots and lots of purebred huskies and shepherds and, and beagles and those types of dogs. So if you give us a chance, oh, chihuahuas, oh, my gosh, that's probably the number three breed that we have. We have so many purebred little chihuahuas in our shelter. So I would always give your local shelter a chance or, like you said, go on Pet Finder or any other website that 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 directs you to a shelter that has the kind of breed that you're looking for. And then might I just plug the animals that are mixed breed animals that I think are the best of all that shelters are full of wonderful, sound, great temperament, mixed breed yeah. puppies and adult dogs. The ones you can't quite identify, but you fall in love with and for good reason. <laughs> and you know what? We have actually DNA tests where you can run a DNA test and then you can find out what the parents were and the grandparents were. And it's just kind of interesting to kind of guess what breed they actually are. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, because it's, it's often very surprising by the look yes, of the dog <laughs> and what it comes out. It's like, oh, my God, I, I totally guessed wrong. Yeah. yeah, sometimes you don't even, you can't even believe it, right, once you get yeah. back. Exactly. So so back to this SPCA thing, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, just because we just had a fun drive and some other stuff, I'm, I wanted to get to this sooner, but I just wasn't able to. But in the meantime... Uh, all kinds of national organizations, national media outlets, as well as, of course, local organizations and local media outlets have covered this extensively. Right. But if I follow this, and I mean, it seems like there's new updates daily, if not more frequently than that. It seems like SPCA Tampa Bay is kind of, um, in the vernacular, kind of doubling down. Like they seem, yeah. you know, not to be backing away from this at all. They seem to be more adamant in some ways about it than, than they first were when they unveiled it. So. And I and you're right, and I'm not quite sure. I have talked to Martha a couple of times since this all happened. I've worked with her for many, many years because I just I'm trying to understand why they would do that. And you're right; they seem to really believe this is the way to go. I don't understand it. I'm I'm shocked by it, and I think that is why so many national groups, best friends, ASPCA, HSUS, within a couple of days, Duncan, they came out with very strong statements. Yeah, against against this practice, and and I will give a kudos to our own county here in Hillsborough County, Florida. We made it so that pet stores had to close, and they had left an opening that they could grandfather in a couple of the pet stores that we had. Well, there was such a public outcry here in Hillsborough that the the commissioners said, "Nope, we're not going to grandfather in." So you can't go to one of these pet stores that purchases 
um, purebred puppies from puppy mills in Hillsborough. So I don't understand why Pinellas County commissioners didn't do the same thing. So I, I, I encourage people to reach out to the government officials in Pinellas because they could put an end to this if they would make it illegal to have these pet stores. Well, that. Uh, kind of jumping ahead to something I was going to ask at the end, but this is as good a time as any I was going to, uh, in fact, ask you what you would recommend for concerned listeners, what kind of steps to take or actions to take. So uh, just to see to if there's a way to mitigate this, and uh, especially because, again, they seem more adamant than ever about forging ahead with this. So, so it sounds like... You know, there's been a lot of things online that say, you know, reach out to, to Martha herself, who is the CEO, or their board of directors. That might be something. I, but if they don't change their mind... We need to cut off, you know, the 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 the, the pup, puppy stores that are allowing this to happen, and that would be the, um, you know, Pinellas uh, Board of County Commissioners, and I think the City of Largo also voted to keep those pet stores open. Uh, I think you you know you just have to kind of tweak your uh, <laughs> your politicians and say this is not right. We don't want to be this way. We're and Pinellas County is going backwards, in my opinion. Yeah, by allowing this, you mean. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it just seems like if that was cut off or there were people were, were to write or email or call or just whatever way they could contact these people and let them know that they find this unacceptable, yes. then this wouldn't be, there wouldn't be an outlet, I guess, for this plan of SPCA right. Tampa Bay's, right? There'd be that like cut right. off that and so, right. yeah. That is right. They can always, what a lot of the puppy mills are doing now, Duncan, is, you know, they're selling their dogs online. So I don't know how to get that cut out. I yeah. Think. I wish I could come up with a way because, I mean, they're horrible. I mean, they really, really are horrible if you care about the well-being of animals. So I don't know how to cut off that thing, but certainly the puppy stores are the easiest things. Let's close all the pu- the puppy stores. I know that there's some interest in the national groups to close down all puppy stores in Florida and actually nationally. And if you more progressive communities have been doing this for many years anyway because they see the evidence and they don't want that in their community. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, I just, I just wonder what's going to happen uh, if, if there's anything that would deter Martha and or SPCA Tampa Bay. I mean, I don't know if there's. I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, because it I, sounds like you've had conversations with her, you know her, and it sounds like. I have, yeah. Because to I, me, I, this plan, like part of the thing about puppy mills, which you touched on, but I mean, just to take it one step further, dogs that are involved in puppy mills and breeding. They're just, they're constantly bred. They constantly have puppies. And then they're worn out. And that, at that point, as I understand this proposal, that's the point at which those dogs who've been through that kind of hell become eligible for becoming a, a pet of somebody's through this uh, commercial enterprise. So, right. And I, I can tell you from our, my personal experience, there have been some local breeders in our area in Manatee and Hillsborough County that have been breeding animals. And I can just remember one particular case where the, you know, the woman was getting up in age and she, and she had uh, collies, some, uh, boar collies, that's what it was. And she said, I just don't want to do it anymore. And she had a couple of adults. They were elderly, but they were, they, she had taken really good care of them because those animals lived in her home. And then she asked if we would take them. We took them and we found, you know, we find senior dogs, homes, and cats all the time. Sure. So I have no problem with shelters taking animals that are retired from a good source. I think, yeah. I, think that's, I think that's a good thing for us as humane societies to do. But we've got to cut off this puppy thing. And if people can just stop thinking that they have to have that eight or nine or $10,000 puppy, um, I mean, the public needs to change their perception. There's lives that are needed to be saved in every shelter across America. We're all 
trying to do the best we can for these animals, and we just need the public's help. For sure. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I first got a look at this plan, I thought, this is like pulling somebody's leg, right? I mean, this is, it seemed... It's, <laughs> you thought it was a joke. Well, I mean, just because it seems so outrageous and so absurd and flies in the face of everything, a show like this and an operation like oh. yours and countless others talk about and, and sort of have worked against for many years, right. and you just think... Someone with a straight face is saying, well, here's what we're going to do, and we're going to tap the puppy mills and the breeders, and then we're going to take them to the, the pet stores and do this. It's like, how many different things that we've all been sort of working steadfastly against are this, is this plan going to involve? So. I think that's why it hurts so much, and I think there's got to be some reason that, that the SPCA has chosen to go this route that I don't understand or that you and I don't understand. There's uh, something missing here, and I'm not sure. I don't know if it's money. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's influence because certainly they've gotten a lot of bad press about this, so I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure why they made this decision, but I really hope, that, and if anybody's listening, the board or uh, Martha, I just hope that they would reconsider and go back to being a you know a good shelter to help homeless animals and and just stop this foolishness of taking animals from you know from pet stores yeah. and they're doing the vet care for them too which I guess I have no problem with but I understand also they're no longer doing accepting vouchers for you know um, poor people that need to have their uh, their own pets sterilized their clinic in St Petersburg is no longer accepting vouchers but yet they're accepting animals from the pet pet store so i don't i don't understand that piece of it either yeah i just, i just don't think we know it without everything that's going on yeah well that 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 made me wonder about another part of this which is that in what may be some kind of weird ironic scenario i'm just wondering what the likely consequences of this arrangement are for spca tampa's existing funding people have otherwise donated for years or there've been other grants or other sources of uh, monies to help their operation i'm just wondering if that unravels this or if people you know feel like uh, if i were her because i'm a ceo here at humane society yeah i would be very concerned our donor is going to support me i mean i'm sure she's got to be thinking about this because i mean you can do the best work in the world and donors are savvy now and doug and there's yeah. great place to donate there's so many wonderful charities across the state of florida and in, in our tri-county area I, I don't know because i i would think that donors would question should i give my money there or should i go to a local rescue group or yeah well that's that's what i would think so too yeah that's what i mean it seems like kind of an ironic twist because this seems so much money oriented and yet it may when all the dust is settled this may end up costing them considerable funds uh, and a a plan that probably ultimately is going to misfire i would think but i uh, would think so too yeah i would think so too but meanwhile she's got her shelter full of animals i'm sure so i'm hoping that people will still adopt from that facility because we yeah Adoption, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, we're not looking to punish the innocent animals. No, it's only yours, right? It's not their fault. It's, yeah. It's not their decision to do this. So, you know, if you live in that area and you want to adopt, I think you should continue to adopt from them because, you know, those animals need a second chance. That's right. Well, Sherry, we're just about out of time, I'm afraid, but thank you so much for making the time to join us and give us a much sure. sort of better, more uh, expert uh, perspective on this whole plan. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye bye. So it's WMNF Tampa, Glenn Hatchell next week in my place, and I'll be back two weeks from now about Tampa Bay Veg Fest. It's WMNF Tampa.